Hey everybody, welcome to Sound of Sanity. I'm not even going to let the music play. I'm going to get right to it because we got so much great stuff to talk about today. You are listening to the Sound of Sanity. And this sound will continue for the duration of the pod- pod- podcast. It's Ben right there. He's the Hello. preacher who's a teacher of sanity. Ben, why don't you introduce everybody's favorite character? <laughs> oh my I, goodness. I will, Nathan. It's Pastor Jake Benzel. He's a pastor who's a master of sanity. He's a pastor who's a master of sanity. All right, guys. We are oh very tired today. And we are... Using the royal we. We are. Yes. <laughs> we are. We are amusing. <laughs> we are going to read some tweets by... No, we're not reading tweets. I'm sorry. Let me get my bearings. We are going to read some responses sent to us by our friends... We were responding to a recent episode we did on the Bible Project, and one of those was our old pal, Gunny. You guys remember Gunny? I do. Tried to interfere with this podcast from time to time. So Gunny says, for what it's worth. This is exactly how Gunny talks. I'm doing a perfect impression. A lot of people went through a Bible Project phase at my church. Tim Mackey's view on hell is kind of self-lucy. Hell is a place of mercy. I can't even understand the words that you're saying. Let me say it again. I'll say it. Actually, I'll do Gunny's real voice. For what it's worth, a lot of people went through a Bible project phase at my church. Tim Mackey's view on hell is C.S. Lewis. Hell is a place of mercy where God gives people the dignity of being apart from him if that's what they want. I think you caveated it adequately on the podcast, but I know there's a few people at church that like Bible project, and it tends to be one of those things where people get exposed to it and are instantly obsessed with it. Once you get of the book overviews i assume he means off the book interviews he starts getting pretty off so that was gunny's take on the bible project we also got a text from somebody else jake you got one from somebody yeah this person is a pastor of a church not in our presbytery but somebody who i would consider a friend for what it's worth i love the bible project podcast it's super helpful one it's really great at making connections across all of scripture all of the big picture Story Bible or whatever that book was called. Two, it's great at setting up cultural and historical context. Three, they do helpful word studies. I use it the way that Nathan described. One of my favorite nuggets that I learned from the Bible Project, Hebrew word for glory, kavod, used to describe Eli from 1 Samuel 4 when he fell off his chair and broke his neck. He was old and he was kavod. He had weightiness or glory. That was good and helpful and I used that one in a sermon. Well, there you go. I trust both of these men to know what they're talking about. And like I said, I've used the Bible Project and enjoyed it as far as it goes. I trust Gunny when he says it gets pretty off once they delve away from their basic sort of core overview Mm -hmm. thing. But I also trust other guy when he says, hey, it's some helpful stuff. Yeah, I think we mentioned the hell stuff. We did. On the last episode. So we had some other caveats there. That we were at least aware of at the time. I don't really have anything to add, but I think that it's helpful to hear from both those guys. So, yeah, thank you, gentlemen. All right, folks, that's actually the perfect lead into the show that we're doing today because we are looking at some things that have happened in the church and in the Christian community, the Christian culture. At large, we are looking at the things that our patrons told us to look at. If you want to be one of those patrons, then you go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity, and you can dictate to us just by dropping things into a thread exactly what you want us to talk about on the show, and we'll do it. Not 
always in a timely manner because I see we are looking at some stuff that is pretty old now. But hey, you don't want the quickest take. You want the best one. And we are here to provide neither. So white evangelicals are the lone or the... Yeah, that's right. The For some reason, it autocorrected to, to the long bulwark in my notes here. But white evangelicals are the lone bulwark against moral insanity in America. This was a tweet that created a furor. It was tweeted by Stephen Wolf, author of Case for Christian Nationalism. And I guess we can go ahead and do the first two things that people told us to talk about first. So mm-hmm. there's also a response to this tweet written by Samuel Say, Samuel Say, who can be pretty helpful. And he's basically, and Samuel say, of course, a black fella. And Samuel say, I'll just read a little bit from his thing. Hours after his original tweet, Wolf claimed he was simply referring to white evangelicals as a voting block. But that doesn't make any sense. If he was sincerely referring to white evangelicals as a voting block, then why didn't he say white evangelicals are the largest bulwark instead of saying they're the lone bulwark against moral insanity in America? If he was sincerely referring to white evangelicals as a voting block, then he's essentially saying the conservative votes of black, Latino, Asian, and all evangelicals are completely irrelevant. Wolf and his defenders also suggested he was making a sociological argument. But that assumes sociological arguments aren't theological. Sociological truth is also theological truth. If it's sociologically true that white evangelicals are the lone bulwark, then it's also theologically true. Still, even if it were possible that this tweet was strictly sociological, what does that achieve? Anyway, just because the world presents white evangelicals as a uniquely bad group doesn't mean we need to defend white evangelicals as a uniquely good group. We shouldn't respond to worldliness with worldliness. We shouldn't repay evil with evil. Some people say Wolf's words shouldn't be taken literally. They say his words are generic, but that's clearly not true. The word alone makes his words specific. And he goes on from there, but I've already read too much. So, yeah, what do you guys think about Stephen Wolf's tweet? What do you think about Samuel Say's response? What do you think about there, there was quite a brouhaha on Twitter, most of which I was vaguely irritated by and scrolled <laughs> past without engaging in the least on. I did spend some time looking at this, but I don't know what to say. If you like uh, Stephen uh, Wolf, Wolf's approach is just Mott and Bailey style. Yeah. I'm going to provoke you as much as I can. Yeah, and, and, and so he's a it. provocateur, and that's the way that you get traction on places like Twitter is you can be provocative, and you have the perfect excuse always of it was a tweet. It was a 140 ca- or 280 characters or whatever. You know, if you got mm. Twitter blue, it's as much as or as little as you want it to be, but it was just a tweet. You know, I can't have nuance, and now let me... Nuance it. Nuance it here, there, and everywhere else without taking it back, and I still said what I said. And if you're for me and you're for all kinds of different connotations of what this tweet means, then, hey, we're on the same page. You know, if you're against me, then you're wrong and stupid. And so it's just a cheap way to argue and it's a cheap way to gain some social media clout. And it's the kind of thing that's chased me right back off Twitter. I mean, I I just can't stand this sort of thing. So I, in my notes, wrote down a proverb, proverb 16 something. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And obviously you could condemn a lot of Twitter under that. But the thing about Stephen Wolf in particular that I don't like about his book and I don't like about his tweets is it's exactly what you're saying, but I don't even think that he's very good at that or he's particularly disingenuous. He's actually more disingenuous than a lot of provocateurs, I would say. 
because the problem with Wolf is like sometimes he's talking in poetic generalizations, sometimes he's trying to make a rational argument, sometimes he's doing another thing, but he really, I'm sorry, he lacks the rhetorical skill to make it clear when he's doing that. Like there's a way to signal, all right, I'm being provocative. Yeah, there's an art to it. There's an art to it, and some people have it, and I think a lot of people have it more than he does. I think Scott he's like, Adams is better. Scott Adams, I mean, yeah, that's a big example. That's like, <laughs> yeah, a tank is better than a water <laughs> pistol, but, but yes. You're welcome. <laughs> the great tweeter. Yes. What, uh, I don't actually think he even knows which one he's doing. I don't think he knows he's being provocative, or if he does, he's really disingenuous, because he'll always act like he's being... He's surprised. Like he's being sensible and rational and... This is one of the main problems with the book itself, which I know you guys haven't read, but the book is like, I'm just going to lay this out very rationally. And then it's just like a mess of intuitions and ideas. And it's like, if he just was Nietzsche, if he was just like, here's a word picture of the things that I've been thinking about, and I'm going to make it as compelling as possible. And if you share some of my intuitions about life, if he was just upfront about that's what he's doing, that's one thing. But he wants to be like, all right, let us reason together. I'm a scholar. I'm a scholar. I'll train you. I will train. And it's like, no, dude, you're basing this on some wild speculations. And okay, when people agree with all that stuff, they like what you're doing. Or if they just like where you're going, they don't care how you get there. But either be a scholar or be a provocateur. You can't combine both of them. Or if you or you have to be like a Taleb level player of the game if you're going to. And even somebody like that, even somebody like Scott Adams falls into trouble. So mm-hmm. I just think... I'm done with Stephen Wolf. I think wh- whether you agree with his points or not, rhetorically, he's irresponsible. He's not judicious. And I, you know, I'm provocative on Twitter. People can be provocative. What Jake described is an annoying thing about Twitter. But when someone knows how to play that game in a way that is fair and makes sense and we're all on the same page, that's one thing. The reason I think... And you're allowed to make mistakes as you figure it out. Yeah, that's true too. But I don't... See, from the little that I've observed, I don't see Stephen Wolf. <laughs> I see him doubling down in a bad way and just being kind of rhetorically unhelpful. I, I, as excited as people are, my prediction is if there is the great prophet of Christian nationalism, he's not it. He just happens to be the only prophet of Christian nationalism right now that's had any public prominence. So He's polarizing to no good end from right. what I've seen. Yeah, He's going to make people mad, and then the people that like him are going to be like, ha, we made... Idiot's mad. Now we're winning. Right. And if you're listening to this and you're into Christian nationalism or any of this stuff, I'm not making any arguments about that one way or another. If you think there's great points in Stephen Wolf's book, that's fine. I'm not arguing about that. As a rhetorician, I do not like what I see in that man or in his circle. And I don't actually mean the Moscow circle. I mean, like that duty podcasts with and some of the other, that other guy that's named Wolf. Is that guy, is William Wolf related? Not that we know of. They just both... Tweet and tweet and feed off each other and tweet irresponsible things. Okay, so there you go. Okay, we have an incredibly annoying YouTube video. Boy, howdy. By a gentleman named Dan McClellan, who I guess is getting some traction or has some traction already. I had not heard of him, but he is like a one of these atheist apologist kind of dudes. He talks like someone who used to be a Christian and now hates Christianity. He talks like an anti-Christian. What do they call that? The deconstruction movement? He's yeah. He's part of the deconstruction movement? Yeah. I didn't read anything about him. I just watched his annoying video. I watched a little bit of the annoying video. He says, the Bible is not univocal. 
The pastoral epistles disagree with other Pauline epistles, so therefore they were written by someone else. That's academic consensus. That's academic consensus. <laughs> he just makes all these, he makes loads of claims. He sounds really smart and reasonable. I don't think he's that smart and reasonable. I didn't feel threatened by this guy at all. I thought he was dumb. His style of criticism is just the <laughs> cheapest, most subjective crap. I, I hate it when people do it about Shakespeare. Shakespeare couldn't have written the plays bearing his name because how could he know so many things and adopt so many points of view? And dude, people contain multitudes. The Apostle Paul could have written different things for different audiences at different times in his life. It's not that hard to imagine. Go through your email yeah. and look at how you write to different people. Look, look at how at it's changed how you over write the years. To your boss versus how you write to your son. Yeah. Versus how you write to your wife. Versus how versus... you wrote to your son 10 or, or your boss 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, ugh. just come on, guys. It's so snooty and reductive, and it's not you're holding Paul to a standard or Shakespeare to a standard you wouldn't hold yourself to. Or uh, any rational, normal, reasonable person. I know there's a theory, for example, I don't even like this kind of thing. Like, there's a theory that Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes, A, because it's apparently written at the end of his life and it has a redemptive message, which doesn't really track with what we know of Solomon's life. B, because people will argue that the central part of Ecclesiastes is maybe it's another text or written by someone else who just actually is in existential despair. And then maybe the preacher is putting like a button on either side of it, uh, framing to it. sanctify it. Sanctify it. And you don't think that Solomon could actually have been not redeemed, but wise enough to write a redemptive book. Like you don't think that that could work. It could work that way. And you don't think he could adopt multiple points of view. Like you don't think the wisest man who ever lived might've wanted to work a riddle into his a riddle to stop dumb people from being able to <laughs> right to follow it and, so, and, and the only <laughs> thing that you can say is well there's no way that he could have done something complex or represented points of view even beyond what he felt or the sanctification level he had and so it must be written by five different people and made up of five different it's, it's like that's just the most reductive snooty useless academic style of criticism and of critical analysis i find nothing useful about it whatsoever because it just denies basic it's like making everything into a math game instead of human beings are complicated they can do different things they can they contain multitudes again yeah and the hubris of i because i have some letters behind my name in the 21st century can overwhelm the consensus of thousands of years of of history. You're not just disagreeing with Paul, which is bad enough, or with Paul, the people who received his letter, which is bad enough, but you're, yeah, you're disagreeing with centuries of scholars, of theologians. Of people in the first, second, and third centuries who are much more close contextually to Paul and who were not idiots. Yeah, I mean, I just, this whole you school know, of that like, sort of thing, like, come on, guys. The people who knew Jane Austen must have been biased in the way that she, they wrote about her. So the only way we can figure out anything about her life or what she actually thought is by constructing it now with our own biases. I just, I think this whole style of academic inquiry is useless. So I find nothing interesting about this guy. I find nothing compelling. I find nothing threatening. This guy is a joke. He's a clown. He is worthy of no further discussion. Do you guys have any further discussion? No. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I think he's kind of cool. <laughs> All right. Um, Neat. Oh. Speaking of articles that I had very little patience for, and I'm sorry. 
Strategic thinking for the negative world is the final article today. <sighs> this is an article in the American Reformer. It's by a dude named Simon Kennedy. There once was a man named Simon Kennedy. He had whiskers on his amenities. He's currently a visiting fellow <laughs> at the Matthias. It rhymed. Don't, don't ask too many questions. He's a visiting fellow at the Matthias Corvinus Collegium in Budapest. He's a research fellow at the University of Queensland and has a forthcoming book on Christian worldview and education from Lexham Press. He and his family attend a Presbyterian church in Queensland, Australia. All right, so Simon Kennedy in between dodging kangaroos and wallabies and pulling out bigger knives and stuff like that and, and drinking beer. <laughs> he thought he could write a lot. Oh, my goodness. That's my line of scholastic inquiry. I'm going after the guy for being from Australia. No, no, no. So basically, he starts by saying, hey, the world as a whole is going to get poorer and more dangerous in the, here in the West. Churches are going to decline in numbers and wealth. Persecution will increase. Therefore, the church has to be nimble. It has to adapt. It has to take something from its brethren in more highly persecuted nations. And this is his... So that's the problem. He spends a long time setting it up. And then here is his solution. Basically, we need to have lots of space that's owned not by the institutional church, but by what he calls the organic church. So, for example, Christ Church in Moscow, he uses as an example, Doug Wilson's church. They, the church itself does not own a bunch of businesses and restaurants and stuff in Moscow, but its members do. And this guy thinks, instead of that just sort of being an informal outpouring of what happens when a church is successful in a community, we need to make that happen intentionally. In fact... We should not even have a building. Like what we should actually do with any capital that we accrue as a church is we should disseminate it somehow. He doesn't have a scheme for how to do this properly, but we need to disseminate it into the community. So so basically what he's saying is if your church has property, then you've got a big target on your back. They're going to come for you. So what you do is you any money you take in, you split it up among the members, and then they buy coffee houses and other things. So basically the church organically owns property and takes up space, as he would call it, but it doesn't technically. It, on the books, it doesn't. He's got some other things, so I'll just read, quote, what do we do? So, so basically, you're going to get, you're going to whittle down to one full-time pastor. You're not allowed to have more than one full-time pastor on the payroll, and you're going to sell your building because it's a liability. And then he says, quote, what do we do without the extra ministers and buildings? It's simple, but not easy. Devolve corporate worship into homes three Sundays a month. All members are attached to a house church. This is insane. And it, 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 this just, is insane. And each uh, house church taps into the minister's teaching, preaching. Each house church is also led in worship, pastoral care, and some teaching by an elder, presumably unpaid. Because we have so many high-qualified pastors who are well-trained and give themselves to pastoral care. Let, let me just say, a church of 100 would probably need, need 7 to 10 house churches, meaning it would need 7 to 10 elders. I'm about to meet your complaint, Jake, before you even say it. That might be a lot of elders for a church of that size. These are men who could be pastoral, can teach if need be, can deal with discipline issues. Oh, it actually sounds like I'm 
not meeting Jake's. No, you're not. You're <laughs> explaining and, and my our, problem. And are on board with the vision and doctrine of church. Men need to step up and be trained, and that job will fall to the minister and perhaps the denomination as well. These men would need to be dead on in terms of theology and the pastoral skills needed for the setting. I envision something like an elders meeting each are month as a session, me? plus a training meeting or two each month as well. Uh, Maybe they could work through a doctrine course, get trained in pastoral care, <laughs> or read a good book together. And then let me just let me just finish. I think it. they should read a good book together. I, I have some it. ideas. That'll do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, Lord the horse of the Rings. The problem is we live in a culture that has killed all of its men, mm-hmm. destroyed and emasculated all of its men. And so when it comes to raising up and training men for ministry, the first thing that you have to do is get men and get men who are men or get men who are broken men and teach them how to be healthy. And that is such a big deal and such a big process. And yeah, we want to be raising up the next generation and thinking long-term about that. But that's the way to think about this solution is to think long-term. We have to be thinking about our kids and our grandkids, and our great-grandkids. And we have to be thinking about getting men healthy and training men for ministry, and then being as adaptable as we need to be. There's no one-size-fits-all solution to this problem, but we do need better ministerial training. We do need better churches that are better equipped to empower men to be men, to be husbands and fathers in their homes, and to become leaders in their churches. But man, it's such a... Talk about somebody who... I, just wants I, to come I, up I just, with some abstract yeah, problem. Yeah, it's, it's like you're in some ivory tower or something like that. Where are your boots on the ground? I don't know. Maybe he has them. Maybe he's really good at raising up men and getting them healthy fast. He's not and, a pastor. He's a scholar. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I just don't trust at all that he understands how difficult a job it is helping men get healthy and get strong in a world that's absolutely committed to emasculating them and getting their homes healthy and getting them in a position of any kind of strength to be of use to their wives, their kids, and building God's kingdom. It's a hard, long work. And I say that, and it's like, okay, well, I'm here in a room across from you guys, okay? We have three other men in our church who are engaged in the pastoral training process on some level in our tiny little church plant of a hundred and so people. Okay, so we're working hard at it. We want to raise up men for ministry where if we need to be broken down into small groups or smaller churches, that's fine. But the need is so great. The need is so great. And so to act like, yeah, we can just easily break down into house churches as if that doesn't multiply the problem, compound the problem instead of alleviate it, it's stupid. You have to have some flexibility church by church so that the church community can build strength and build strength over time, and build strength with a generational timeline ahead of them. Why is Moscow his example? Moscow is a community of 30,000 people, okay, and that church has, it's started in the 80s with a school and a university, and not only do have they been raising up generation on generation of Christian family since the 80s, Okay, so we're talking 40 years now, but they have grown a media empire that has attracted people across the board. They've had a pastoral training institute since like the 90s. Okay, so all of this stuff with my, and so then their ability to have cultivated over 40 years a stranglehold on a community of what, 30 or 40,000 people, 
that are constantly sending them because it's a university community, fresh blood, every single year. It's just not the same. Yeah, you can't just be like, it's, let's snap our fingers and do that. Yeah, it's such a it's such a rare unique it, that in that community was picked for that exact reason. Mm. Like it was chosen, it was hand selected by Doug Wilson's dad. Okay, Doug Wilson's dad decided that this would be a strategic community. So we're talking now multiple generations already here. Mm-hmm. Like Doug's a grandfather or a great grandfather at this point. I don't know. He's a grandfather at least, if not a great grandfather. He's in his seventies. Yeah, he's definitely a grandfather at least. Oh no, he's easily a grandfather. We yeah. know his, who his kids are, and we know his grand you know, that they have kids. I don't know how far up Nate's kids go. He's got to be close to being a grandfather if he's not already a great grandfather. A great grandfather. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant. Yeah. So we're mm-hmm. talking just multiple generations here in a very small community. And maybe I've got the numbers wrong. Maybe it's not thirty thousand. Maybe it's fifty thousand. But it's I, I know for a fact it's smaller than Bloomington, which is seventy. Mm. So, uh, I mean, the other thing, that's all so true and the most important point to make, but let me throw another log on the fire. His whole spiritualization of the problem of money is inane. The fact that yeah. only one guy is going to get paid. Here's his, in his, his visionary dream, what happens is Jake gets paid. We have 10 other guys who are all talented and good enough to kind of shoulder some of the burden enough that Lead, we Lead, worship, have- do pastoral care, teach. Right, but we're going to spread it out among 10 guys, so no one guy has to actually bear a burden like Jake, and so Jake's the only one that we're going to pay. Now, that is super unrealistic. What's actually going to happen in a situation like that is you're going to have three or four guys that share most of the burden, and you're asking, let's say there's four guys, you're you're only going to pay one of them. I mean, the Apostle Paul was very clear about this. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Like, it is... Now, I understand you can point to all kinds of examples of men who have given their lives, who've gone into the mission field, blah, 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 blah. Nothing you can I'm saying- point to the Apostle Paul deciding that he's going to make his own money with his own hands. But if you can help it, you contexts. do not build a system that expects that kind of altruism. If somebody wants to make well, that's a That's part choice, of the problem with attracting quality men to the job. Let's be real here. What we're talking about... I want you to go through a training program. I want you to give a big chunk of your life to this. Yeah, give, give somewhere around five years of your life and thousands and thousands of dollars and earning potential. Set your family on the back burner forever. Oh, yeah, but you have to be a good father who's going to provide for his wife and kids. But also set all that aside. And also, here, come take this job that's going to be a 24-7 job that's going to require everything from you, that's going to make huge demands on your wife and family, it's absurd. Yeah, but uh, this guy's... Well, okay, but and one other log on the fire is his, his solution is, well, what about all the giving, you know? It doesn't need to go towards these oh, other pastors. Just ridiculous. No, yeah. this, this part I could not believe. This doesn't need to go towards the other pastors. You don't have to upkeep a building anymore. Where's it going to go? You need to keep up the same level of giving into a trust fund not owned by the church. Until over a span of years, you have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in this trust fund. Millions of dollars that you can use to pay legal fees if someone gets into trouble for being a Christian. Or Or buy a coffee shop in the community. No, okay, okay. Oh, oh, look, we got the target off our back. It was a building. Now all we have is 
Millions of dollars owned by Christians connected to our church. That's not a target, right? The government could never find a way. To... What in the world, it's so dude? Well, like, also... you're nuts. And then who's in charge of dispersing the money? The elders that you don't pay? Well, right. and who, Just the pastor? who is going to give money to that? Hey, Come dude, you want to put some money in this abstract communal I thing? I can't that believe it, this. It's so... <laughs> <laughs> We could barely pay for Warhorn Media for crying out loud. Warhorn Media is we can't. can't. (laughs) Warhorn Media is going under because Warhorn Media is way too abstract and it's not connected to things that people feel value in. Even though people love these pod, like people will actually pay for a podcast. They'll sign up for a Patreon. But if I just say, "Hey, can you pay for Warhorn Media?" They don't know what I'm talking about. They'll give to their church, and you know what? I hate to break it to you. You know what they're giving to when they give it to? They see Jake. They see Jake's family. They want to take care of them. They have like actual ideas in mind when they give their money. I'm sorry, this sort of abstract, faux altruistic mm. stuff, it's just like... Dude, uh, it's dude, called pe- strategic. No, it's called Marxism. It's called an abstract system that has nothing to do with the way that the human heart mind... And would never end heart- up generating bitterness and conflict over money. Yeah, instead of being clear about where our money go, instead of knowing if I give a dollar, probably Jake's going to see some of that dollar. Like, oh, is Jake being greedy? no. Jake's getting paid to do a job, and he's taking care of his family. It's nice when I can make those connections. No, I'm just and it's give... important for the church to have the opportunity to actually show their love and gratitude for the people that care for them, love them, and feed them. Right. It's important to for their spiritual health and good. And I'm the one that gets paid to say that, but that's the truth. Honestly, there are people in your church who would rather take their tithe money and put it in an empty envelope and go drop it off at their pastor's house because they're afraid that their pastor's not seeing enough or not going to see it. It's going to go to other places that they don't care about. Yeah, nobody's like giving that, to there this are, trust fund. There are always people like that in your church. You have to understand that. That's why it's actually really healthy. People talk like when a church does a love offering or whatever at the end of the year, that it's like trying to line the pockets of the pastors or something anymore. It's oppressive or whatever, but it's an outlet. It's an outlet for your people to be sure that they have every opportunity to express love for the people that care for them and can make that love felt and known. And if you don't give them that outlet, that opportunity, they will do it on their own. They will do it on their own and they'll do it disproportionately. And then you won't know what's happening. You won't know that somebody has cut back on their tithe and has you know, dropped $5,000 into the lap of one of the pastors anonymously or whatever it is. And that's not how you want things to work. Right. This guy is asking for lies. He's asking for bitterness. He's asking for all these problems. You can't just build a system around pure kind of nebulous altruism. It does not work. It's never worked in the history of humanity, in the history of the church. Pastors are people. Pastors have... Families to feed. Sorry if you did not know that, and that's a surprise to you. They have retirement. They are not just these angels from God that do not think about these things. They think about these things all the time, just like any person with a job does, and they need to in order to care for their families. And, and again, none of that is to say that someone can't make a personal decision to go be a tent maker somewhere, to be a missionary. And it's not to say that sometimes in a super persecuted environment, there aren't necessary evils that the church will adopt. But the fact that this guy is going to start from zero and build this system is ridiculously and insultingly naive. 
I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sure Simon Kennedy meant well, but I haven't been more irritated reading anything that anyone's dropped on in our, including all the pro-natalism and like, okay, Pagan's going to Pagan, but for this guy to dictate to everyone from his ivory tower what they should do and then to be so ridiculously naive about the way that the human heart works, the way that real world works, the way that money works, I just don't have any patience for it. If you'd like to give us some money, <laughs> go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. We could use it. It will feed one of the three families represented in this room, I dare say. Maybe all three of them. Maybe all three of them. Yeah, exactly. So patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity until, oh, and you can tell us, read articles and you'll be excited about the articles and then we'll say how angry the articles made us and <laughs> you'll feel very validated by, by implication you'll be an absolute moron for posting it <laughs> so <laughs> no actually in, in fairness to our lovely discord people they were just like huh this is interesting i don't know what to think about this and <laughs> we sure told them what to think okay i just hit the wrong sound effect that'll take us out until next time stay sane